We are in Exodus chapter 21 today. Do follow along. This is a curious passage. We are in Exodus chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter." If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, Exodus 21. Uh, I know there's probably a couple of reactions when we come to a passage like this. One is like, you're kidding. Um, uh, how in the world is this relevant to my life? And why don't we just skip over it? And the other one is, you're kidding. How in the world is this still in the Bible? It seems so backwards. And, and, uh, and, and so, so why don't we skip over it? Either way, you're kind of like, I don't, I don't understand the relevance. But we have, to, we have this belief. We have this belief in the plenary inspiration of Scripture. That is, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuke, training, and righteousness, right? That's what Paul says. And so when we come to that, we have to remember that. And so this morning, we're going to do sort of two things. This is kind of a study in ophthalmology. Let me explain that. What I mean by that, it's sort of a study in the lenses that we put on all of us when we read Scripture. Every person in here has lenses through which they read Scripture. There's some ways you can't help that, but you need to be aware of it. For example, uh, all of us in here are born into the modern era. That is that this is, you know, science has now revolutionized the world. So we have that lens over us. Most of us in this, in this room are Western by background, right? Western values and mores. And most of us in the room would, would consider ourselves American. So there's all these filters that we see. And let me just show you what I mean. When I say that we come to scripture with filters, I want to show you an example of this. It has nothing to do with our passage this morning. But 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Paul says this, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Now, watch this. Just, uh, don't, you don't have to answer out loud, but which one of those terms, uh, term or terms sort of catches you? I'm guessing that for most people in this room, they hear that and they key in on quietly and submissiveness, right? That's where we're like, why is that there? What is going on? Because we assume the front part of the, of the verse, right? We assume, let a woman learn. We're surprised by the second half. But if I took you back to the first century, here's what you'd find. You'd find the first century listeners seeing that and going, wait a second, we're not surprised by the second half. We're very surprised by the first half. 
We assume women should learn, and, and they should, right? In that culture, this was revolutionary. It's not so much that they keyed in on quiet and submissive. They keyed in and let a woman learn. I only point that out for this. See how our filters affect our reading. And so you're going to see this today. This is, a, this is a study in ophthalmology, but it's also a study in etymology. What's etymology? It's a study of words and how they develop over time. How many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Just raise your hand so I, I know I'm not talking to myself. Okay, good. So, so It's a Wonderful Life. You maybe remember George Bailey and, you know, terrible things happen. And at one point he's very frustrated with his life and he goes to Mary's house who ends up being his wife. I'm not trying to be crass here. I just want you to hear this. He goes and he's downstairs. Her mother calls out and says, who's here, Mary? And she says, you know, it's George Bailey. Why is he here? I don't know. And then a little bit later she says, mom, George Bailey is making violent love to me. Now, that does not at all mean then what it means today, right? And if we were to read it back into It's a Wonderful Life, we would have a very different movie. We mean that term very differently than they meant it. We, we use words like awful. And when I say awful, I'm, you, you, you expect me to think bad or I'm saying something that's bad. Awful started out, right? Its etymology is, it was to something that inspires awe. So you might talk about the awful majesty of God. If I were to tell you somebody is nice, you think to yourself, pleasant, good. You know, these are kind of the synonyms in our heads. When, when that word started, its etymology, go back, it meant simple, silly, foolish. We don't use it that way, do we? So it's incredibly important when we come to Scripture that we understand. We understand the lenses we look through. We understand words. We figure it's because Exodus 21 is going to challenge all of that. Exodus 21 verses 1 through 11 shocks the, the, the ears and eyes of a modern reader. So what do we do with it? How do we unpack this? Well, we're in a passage on slavery. Um... And so, so, so let's ask a few questions to try and unpack this. We're going to get to Exodus 21 in a moment, but I need to do some, some background work to help us get there, okay? The first thing I want you to understand is, is we're asking the question, does, does, um, does Scripture condemn, does it commend, or does it constrain slavery, okay? Condemn, commend, or uh, constrain. Uh, it, so so let's, let's do it this way. Um, we cannot divorce the commands that God gives to his people in the Old Testament from the circumstances in which they find themselves. So for example, here's what I mean. God takes people exactly where they are and just doesn't leave them there. So what did he do? He took the people out of Egypt and now God's going to go to work, if we can say it this way, of getting Egypt out of the people. Does this make sense? Like I have to, I have to teach and help them get to this place. And so I'm going to teach them and we're going, to, we're going to help them get to a different place, but I'm going to accept them right where I find them. Now, where does God find them? He finds them after 400 years of slavery. And let's, let's make sure we understand this. They don't have one of these. They have nothing even close to it. They don't have a Bible. They don't even have a high priest system at this point. There's no teachers of the law who get up and say, this is how this works and this is what you should do. They know stories of Joseph and Jacob and the patriarchs. Some of that's been passed down orally. Good. That's, that's, a, that's a great thing. 
but they don't have, I mean, you guys, do you understand what a privilege we have to come every single week? I can tell you open to this passage. You get to open that passage and we get to hear what God says to us about all manner of subjects, right? They don't have that. So it shouldn't surprise us to find that Israel had picked up a lot of, if you will, the cultural norms of the society around them. Things like polygamy, like multiple, multiple wives, right? That, that would have been a part of what, then you're going to see that here. Things like slavery, that was very common in Egypt. And so here they are, and here's what's happening. God takes people right where they are, but he doesn't leave them there. Now, if these things are so common, if polygamy is so common and slavery, and we're going to define this in a moment, but slavery is so common, what happens if God comes along and through divine fiat, if he had had an 11th command that said something like, you shall not own slaves. Now we, again, our filters, our understanding, we say he should have done that. If he would have done that, God would have uh, created destitution for the most vulnerable people in society. If he just said no polygamy from here on out, you can only have one wife, get rid of the, uh, all the extras. All these women, all these servants would have found themselves on the street with no ability to provide for themselves. God takes people where they are. He doesn't leave them there. You follow me? This is really, really crucial that we understand this if we're going to make sense of a, of a passage like this. So now, what does he do? He doesn't condemn. You're not going to find one passage in the scripture that says, thou shalt not own a slave. Okay, there's no condemnation, but you're not going to see anything close to, hey, the whole slave system, that's a great way to get ahead in life. Let me show you how to do it. There's no commendation. Okay, follow? There is constraints. What God does is so constrain it that I, I, I want to submit to you that if Israel actually followed the laws about polygamy and followed the laws about slavery in the seeds of them following that, I'm going to show you this, would be the destruction of both of those things. They would at some point cease to exist. He takes people where they are. He doesn't leave them there. Okay. And what you're going to see is that he's going to take, we'll just take slavery and he's going to make the institution of slavery more humane and just for the slave and less desirable for the owner. And thereby, this sows the seeds of destruction, okay? Now, let's keep going. So that's, so, so first, does he condemn? No, does he commend? Absolutely not. He constrains, okay? That, that's, that's where we get. Second thing is, let's, let's talk about what slavery is and is not. What is slavery? See, this is where, again, this is why I wanna talk to you about etymology and the way what, what, what goes off in our head when you, what goes off in your head and my head when we hear the word slavery, if you were, if you were raised in America or you had any understanding, you know we have this horrific past. We have this origin story that's a blight, 
of that we, there was actually a transatlantic, you know, sale of people, what was called chattel slavery. Chattel is just an old English word that means property. And it's not, it's movable property. Think of it like that. Literally, it's as though people were like cattle and they were treated that way and they were abused. And that is, that forms some of the foundation of our union, right? And so there is racial animosity that came out of that that extends all the way to today. So I don't mind saying this out loud. That's horrible and should be condemned. That is not the word. You should not be doing any sort of word association with 18th century chattel slavery when you read about slavery in Scripture. Okay, so we have to fight like crazy in our minds not to be picturing some of the horrific images that we all remember of what 18th century slavery looked like. That is not biblical slavery and we must not read that back into the text any more than when Mary says he's making violent love, we ought to read back our understanding of that movie or it's a very different movie, right? We have to understand it on its terms. That would be the wrong starting point to understand it through those 18th century eyes. Okay, so, so slave. The word slave and master, those two words could um, indicate all manner of economic relationships. So it's kind of a catch-all word. So you would use slave to describe a slave. You would use a, sort of what we would think maybe or, or you know, like, a, like a, a slave, like I, I actually give my existence. You can think of a slave as a debt slave, somebody like I owe money, so I'm going to pay it off this way. You, it, it was used to just describe servanthood, right? That is somebody who serves another. It was, it was used to describe um, an employee. So the, you're, 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 I, I give you wages for what you do. Same thing with master. Some of you know, uh, the word master in Hebrew, you'll recognize this word, is the word Baal. Um, and that word is used to be master, uh, owner, lord. It can be used to uh, signify a boss. This is what I mean. These are, it's, an, it's a kind of a catch-all term that when the Bible uses it, it uses it in all these various different ways. So again, what we cannot do is see that word slave and then read back into it. Look at it through an 18th century lens or by 18th century definitions. Now let me prove to you that the Bible slavery is totally different than the slavery you and I were taught about in our American history classes, okay? To go down to chapter 21, verse 16. Uh, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Right there, that verse would abolish what we know as chattel slavery. You cannot sell a person. In fact, Paul is going to pick up on this in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And, and you might remember this. We, Paul, Paul's actually recalling the Ten Commandments here. Verse 8, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He's talking about the Ten Commandments here. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Now watch this. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, that's what? That's honor your father and mother. Uh, for men who practice are sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, that's adultery. And slavers... These are people who steal other people and enslave them. 
You see what I mean? The Bible's going, no, you can't do that. That's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And if people in the 18th century had been Christians and understood that is the law, that's what we cannot do, New, Old and New Testament forbid this. We cannot steal them and act like they're our property, okay? Let me show you some other things. Go down to chapter 21, go back to Exodus, verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of the eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. What's happening? In other words, he's saying, you cannot abuse them. They are not yours to abuse. They're not your property. So you can't do this. So I mean, we all, again, we have these images, horrific images of torture and abuse that happened to, to slaves in America. He's saying, if that happens, they're free. They're out. No, no more of this. They're done. Um, if, you, if you go over, let me, let me read you something. Listen to, listen to Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 uh, through 15. Listen to this. If your brother... A Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold you sh uh, to you. He shall serve six years. The seventh year, you shall let him go free. That sounds just like Exodus 21, but now watch this. And when you let him go free, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Now, this is a big command. It's taking the law from Exodus 21, expanding on it and saying, here's the deal. You can't just let them go empty-handed. You have to provide them liberally because God provided for you. But listen, what this does, I told you, it makes it less desirable for slave owners and more humane. And it inside the seeds of that, it sows destruction. Because why? Because what's happening when an owner says, here you go, take these, take these crops and take these animals and take all I'm gonna provide you so that outside of this, when you're done, you can provide for yourself and we will break the cycle of slavery. See that? So, so, so this, is, this is what's being sown here. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 23, listen to this. Verse 15, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. Now, there's a lot we could say about this. Here's what I want you to hear. In the Civil War times, right, when we were fighting over slavery, it was a requirement that if you found a fugitive slave, you had to return to the owner. Not here. They're saying that doesn't happen. No, in fact, the slave gets to say, I want to stay here and you are obligated as a community to bring him into your community and let him become a part of it. Done, slavery over. You follow this? So this is, this is what I'm talking about when I say these are, these are very, very different institutions and we have to be really, really careful that we don't read back into the text what we understand this to be. So it effectively dismantles slavery without leaving very vulnerable people out and destitute with uh, no way to provide for themselves. Now, let's get to chapter 21. And it's broken down, verses one through six is about male slaves, verses seven through 11 about female, and we're gonna deal with both of those, okay? So let's talk about, what about male slaves, okay? Notice this, verse one, chapter 21, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And what I want you to see here is we're now getting to what we talked about last week, case law, 
Okay, so he gave the Ten Commandments. Now he's saying, I'm gonna flush out the Ten Commandments to be applicable to every part of your life. Now remember, last week we started with worship, if you will. Like, let's, let's talk first about the vertical relationship that you've gotta make sure you settle. This, this relationship between you and God and how you worship him. Now it's no coincidence that we go from the mighty exalted God to the most humble people in the nation. Servants, slaves, God cares and God wants to make sure they're provided for. God wants to make sure that it's more humane and less desirable for the, for the owners. Okay, so, so watch what he does here. He says, uh, when you buy a Hebrew slave. Okay, so there were conditions under which one Hebrew could, if you will, own or have a Hebrew slave. And so there's a variety of these. Let me just show you them to, to, to you real quick. If, you, if you're in chapter 21, by the way, you need to have your Bible open because we're doing a lot of Bible work this morning. Like just, just follow along with me. Chapter 22, verse two. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. We basically have the same law in, in most American states, right? If somebody's invading your home and they die, it's self-defense. And he's saying there's no blood guilt. You're not guilty, okay? But keep going. But if the sun has risen on him, that is he survives the night, he's actually still alive, um, there shall be blood guilt. He shall surely pay. And if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So the penalty isn't death. The penalty is slavery. If he can't pay the debt, he actually can become your slave, Right now, just keep this in mind. So there's this, there's a slavery, and he gets to he he, he becomes. It, it, we're gonna it, go back to chapter 21. You go down to verse seven. You're gonna find out that it was possible for parents to sell their children. Now we just gasp like this is horrible, right? Like how is this possible? This is this is awful, right? And 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 and, and true. I mean, it's it's it, it would be horrendous. It's illegal, of course, in in uh, the modern world. Um, but again, ophthalmology, let's be careful of the lens through which we're looking at this. Okay, what's happening here? They're not, you've got to see this, they're not motivated to get rich. They are selling them not to some slaveholder and industry like we see in some countries today where they're just going to have to work the mines as these mindless zombie-like people that have no soul in the eyes of the master. No, you're selling them to somebody and the idea behind that is I'm, I'm son, daughter, I'm trying to give you a better life. I can't do this. I can't provide for you. So what I'm going to do is entrust you to the care of a person person with means that can provide for you. Here's the deal. We read that passage and we're offended. They read that passage and they thought, how merciful, how kind that, that somebody would care for them. So I'm talking about, we've got to understand the lenses. This is seen as an act of mercy. That's one way. So they could, they could, it could be a, a, a punishment for a crime. Another way is you could be sold by your parents and finally you could sell yourself. Now, why would any self-respecting person do this? Because they're out of options. Because like selling your son or daughter. I mean, they're like, I have no means. I am utterly destitute or I'm up to my eyeballs in debt. There's no way I'm ever gonna get out of this. So I will sell myself to this owner and then through my service, pay off the debt. And now watch this, look at verse two. 
When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. Okay, again, here's one massive difference between 18th century chattel slavery and what's being described here. This is saying there's a term limit. Right, modern, you hear about a lot of modern slavery. You know, they, a child gets sold into slavery because trying to pay a parent's debt and the, you know, the, the, the owner will basically charge them, charge them this usurious interest rate of 185%. There's never any way of getting out. God is saying here, I don't care what interest he wants to charge. After six years, it's over. It's over. You're out. And there's no keeping them for longer than that, Right? Today, we, we might go, hey, this employee has a six-year contract. They owe this amount of time, right? We do this with, we, we talk about people in sports being free agents, and now they can go. They've, they've put in their time at this club. Now they can go elsewhere. Now, listen, I'm not trying to, do, not trying to say the life of a slave and the life of a, you know, a, a millionaire uh, a guy in sports or gal in sports is, is similar. No, I'm saying we have, an, there's an equivalence even within our culture. The military, right? The, the military says you owe me a certain amount of, of years in exchange for what we provide. We'll pay for your school. Now, again, I'm not saying that's even your motivation to go. I'm just saying that, that's, that's how it works. You, there's a transactional nature to that, that you get paid for your years of service. So this is what's going on, right? Now, so he says, after six years, it's over. You can't keep them longer than that. And we'll see a caveat to that in a moment. Then look at verse three. He basically says, look, if they come in single, they go out single. If they come in married, they go out married. But then we get to verse four. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. And we think, again, our lenses, how cruel. That is horrible. Okay, now again, let's make sure we understand what's happening here, okay? There is some built-in protection to this in this whole transaction for owners. Here's how. Let's, let's assume we've got Jack and we have Jill, and both are slaves of whoever, right? Jack has served five and a half years. In six months, he's free to go. He's, he's, he's put in his time, paid off his debt. Jill is in year, you know, she's six months in, and Jack marries her, and in year, you know, six months later, uh, you know, they, they, they get pregnant, and then they have a baby. Okay, so, so now, if it were possible to take your wife and your children with you, these two slaves, if you will, could have conspired to do an end run around the regulations, and Jill only had to serve a year, or a year and a half, or two years of her six-year term. And, and therefore, the, the owner loses the debt, the investment, whatever. Okay, now, now, again, you think, but, but so cruel. They're, they're splitting up a family. No, not necessarily. Jack can stay. Like, well, I'll show you this. He, he could stay in town and, you know, there's, there's Jill and the kids. They could maybe even live together. And he had options. His options were, one, he could redeem her. There, there's going to be provisions in the law for redeeming a slave. You can pay the debt that's outstanding and she's free to go with her kids. Um, he, he could, he could decide that, that again, he's going to, he's going to live in town and, and, uh, and wait for five years while Jill pays off the rest of her debt, if you will, to, to the owner or, or, um, Jack could, 
Jack uh, could stay. Look at at verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then there's provision for him to stay. Now the key there is a few things. He says, if he says plainly, not insinuated, nothing like that, it's obvious, it's plain. In fact, some of your translations say makes a declaration, like he declares this. I I want everybody to know this. I love my master, wife, kids. There's not a separate kind of love for the master. That's not true of of the kids. He's saying, this is a good master. He is going to provide for me. I actually believe that I'm going to have a better life staying than I would going. And notice this. The one making the call, whether he stays or goes, is the slave, not the owner. The owner isn't saying, nope. Even if the owner were to say, I don't want you. He's like, well, I'm making the call. That's what the law says. I'm staying. And the owner has to say, okay, I got to pay you. I got to keep you here. But then what happens? Then there's this ceremony of commitment. Look at verse 6. Then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the doorpost, uh, door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So there's this ceremony of commitment. Now, why? Because they want to make sure that this isn't some rash thing. Like you literally have to go through steps. This is going to take a few days, maybe a few weeks. You've got you've to first what? Go. He presents him to God. You bring him to God. What's that mean? You probably go to the priest, the high priest or his family. You present him at the altar that, you know, they're building of earth and, and, and stone. Or when they get to the tabernacle or the temple, you go there, right? There's this, there's this uh, formal ceremony they have to go through. He's presented to God so that this is, God is witnessing witnessing this. Something is happening and I want the whole community to know this is happening, right? This is not rash. It's something that's thoughtful. So you go and then what happens? Then he takes you and he puts you up against a door. It sounds terrible. And he pierces your ear with an awl. And what are you doing in that moment? You're basically saying, I'm yours forever. I will hear you, listen to you, obey you, and, and be yours forever. I, I'm committing myself, I'm dedicating my life to you. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but turn with me to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. And, and listen to verses six through eight. This is David, okay? And David is speaking, and this is basically a prayer to God. He says, in sacrifice and offering, you, God, have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. So you got a footnote there. Hold on to it for a second. Uh, Burnt offering and sin offering, you've not required. Then I said, behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book, it is written to me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Most scholars believe, if you look at that, go back up to verse six. It says, you've given me an open ear. I'm reading from the ESV. Some of your translations say, you've pierced my ear. Someone says, you've dug me an ear. And they believe that what David is doing is referring back to the ceremony in Exodus 21. And saying, God, here we are. And you don't want, you don't want sacrifice. You don't want these offerings. What ultimately you want is me. 
You want all of me. You, you, you want my obedience. You, you want my heart. You want me to belong to you forever. You want me to bear the sign of my commitment. And God, I want the same thing too. I, I commit myself to you. I submit myself to you. I will become your slave forever. In fact, let me, let me suggest to you that one of the ways we can read Exodus is that what God is doing, it's not that God is getting rid of slavery. Hear me now. Don't, don't be offended what I'm about to say because this is scriptural and I'll show you this. He's saying, I'm gonna transfer you from slavery here to slavery there. You are going to become my slaves. I'm gonna own you, but I'm a very, very different master. A very, very different Lord, okay? So, so that's, that's the law, that's, that's, um, that's what it says about male slaves. Look at female slaves, look at verse seven. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So there's a different rule. In other words, she doesn't get to leave after six years the way that it happened here. Uh, the way it happened in verses one through six. Rather, well, and, and why is that? That seems like, wait, this seems sexist, it's unfair. Okay, again, let's be careful. Let's make sure we're looking at this through the right lens because you're gonna notice if you begin to read through seven through 11, she's not hired to do work. In this instance, she's, um, we're all familiar with the whole, the whole notion. We don't do this anymore, at least not in American culture, right? We don't have dowries. Those of us with daughters wish that, you know, somebody would pay us when, when you get to take our daughter, you jerks, right? But, but <laughs> we don't do that anymore. But look at it that way. This is a mom and dad. And, and okay, you, you've all seen Sense and Sensibility and these, these different sort of, you know, 19th century period pieces where what are, what are mom and dad just obsessed about? I gotta marry my daughters into a good marriage. They've gotta be provided for. Really don't care about the guy, just can he provide for her, right? Okay, see it this way. This is like a dowry. This is here, the mom and dad saying, I'm giving to you for marriage, this is not for her to be a worker out in the field. This is for her to become somebody's wife, either the first wife or a concubine slash, you know, what we would refer to as maybe a second wife. So that's what's going on here. Um, and, and the reason six years doesn't apply is because marriage doesn't end after six years. It's meant to be a covenant union that lasts forever, okay? So, so parents, this is a mom and dad saying, I wanna make sure my daughter is provided for, right? I'm Mr. and Mrs. Bennett trying to provide for my daughters and make sure they marry well. That's what's going on here, okay? But, but I want you to notice a couple of things. There are scenarios in which she can be freed. Like, like lots of them. Look at, look at verse eight, for example. In verse eight, it says, um, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, so he wanted to marry her, comes in the home and goes, yep, I have second thoughts. All right, well, guess what? Then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall not have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he's broken faith with her. It's his fault. She doesn't pay for it. She's not your property. And her family, mom and dad can come back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Here's your money back. Give us our daughter. That's what's happening there. Okay, so, so she can get out if doesn't please and he can't just treat her and cast her aside like she's property. Verse nine, notice this. Notice even just the way she has to be treated. Um, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. Not, 
not a male slave, not as property. You have to treat her like you would one of your own daughters. And then look at verse 10. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does, does not do uh, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, do you hear what this just said? If he doesn't provide food, if he doesn't provide sexual intimacy, if she, he doesn't provide clothing for her, she can just walk away. I'm out. This is not the slavery you and I know about. This is very, very different and gives radical leeway to women in that day. So, so, so it, it, Paul picks up on this, by the way, and basically says, look, food, clothing, um, sexual intimacy, provision, essentially, when, a, when if a husband or a wife, like, refuses to do those, they've essentially abandoned them, and it's a grounds for divorce. So this is what, this is the Old Testament law version of that. Okay, so this is how female uh, slaves are to be treated. And I think you can see it's very, very different. Now, what about the New Testament and slavery? And here's what I want you to see, and I'll show you this. It undermines slavery as a physical institution, but it underlines slavery as a spiritual reality. Okay, watch this. The last letter of Paul, right before the book of Hebrews, is the book of uh, Philemon. Go, go back to Philemon. And those of you who are going to study it this semester with uh, Chris and Elisa, um, watch this. Look at, go, to, go to Philemon. It's only one chapter, so you don't give a chapter. You say Philemon's eight. And here's Paul, and he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So what's happening, okay? Uh, Onesimus is the slave of Philemon. He is now a fugitive. He's escaped Philemon. He runs into Paul while Paul's in prison. And, and through that encounter becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, I'm now his father. I'm his spiritual father in the faith. I'm the one who led him to Christ. And so, so he says, okay, now I'm about to send him back, but watch this. Look at verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. No longer is a bond bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, what's he doing here? He's saying Onesimus or Philemon. Okay, he's a slave and I have the authority based on the Old Testament and my apostolic authority to tell you what to do. I can tell you how to treat him. I, I, I'm not obligated even to send him back to you. Remember Leviticus or Deuteronomy 23, if there's a fugitive, you don't have to send him back. But Paul says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna appeal to the law and I'm not gonna tell you what to do because I don't want this to be out of compulsion. I want this to come from your heart of love. I want you to do the right thing. Like, like imagine, you know, a couple and guys like, hey, you know, I'm going to go uh, watch the game with my buddies. And the wife's like, 
well, you can do that and I'll stay home and, and clean the dishes and make sure the house is clean and get the kids bathed and put to bed. And I know you'll make the right decision. <laughs> like we all know the right decision, right? This is Paul. I know, Philemon, I'm telling you, there is a right decision here. And the right decision is to treat him as a brother in the Lord. I'm not just sending you Philemon back to you. I'm sending you my heart. He undermines this physical institution we know as slavery. But now turn over to Romans 6 because Paul not just underlines, he, he undermines, but he underlines the spiritual reality. And he uses this metaphor a few times, right? Romans 6 verse uh, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. You know what he's saying? This is a spiritual reality that we find ourselves part of. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin that leads to death and destruction or, uh, or, or slavery to obedience, which leads to sanctification, which leads to becoming more like Jesus. The great theologian Bob Dylan said, you gotta serve somebody, right? You've got to. That's the commonality of every person on planet earth. We are all worshipers. We all serve someone, something, some idea. And here's Paul saying, man, which is it going to be? You can serve death to your destruction. You can serve sin and, and keep wallowing in the things that you're ashamed of. Or you can serve righteousness, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, which will lead you to being more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole idea, right? You can serve a redeemer and a friend. Why would you do this? Why would you be enslaved to God? Well, because first of all, this is what the Bible says. But second of all, because you present him, yourself to him and you say, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. And, and I'm going to serve him. I commit. Now, now, God, come. Come, bore my ear out. Give me ears to hear so that I can obey you. I commit my life to you. Joshua stands up in front of the people and says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Who will you be enslaved to? Will you be enslaved to destruction and sin or will you be slave to a God of which Paul's gonna go on and say he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's a very different master. We all gotta serve somebody. I just hope we answer like Joshua answers his own question. As for me and my house, my wife, my children, myself, we will serve, be enslaved to the Lord, to the good master, the one who will care for us, who will sacrifice for us, who will give us everything we need for life and godliness.
Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you that uh, you didn't leave us destitute. You gave us a way to be provided for under your care. Lord, we, we recognize that we are slaves of what we obey. And so, Lord, we want to be obedient. So, bore out our ear. Give us ears to hear. Pierce our ears in a way that we can hear and we can be obedient, God. We know that is a grace and a mercy that comes from you. And may we, may we commit ourselves afresh and anew every single day, every single week that we belong to you. We are not our own. We were redeemed out of the slave market and evil of evil. And we were bought with a price to glorify God in our bodies, to glorify God with all of our life. Thank you that you are not like any owner, master, Lord, we've ever heard of in this world. You are good, gracious, full of steadfast love and kindness towards your people. And may we submit ourselves to you, the God who owns us all. We love you, we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, listen.